Well, welcome. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Great God, we come together now. Our hearts are humbled. Our thoughts are of you. Lord, but as as the disciple said, Lord, we believe, but help us believe. We are not enough, not even to come and ask for help. For that, we need you to help us ask for help, such as the weakness who we are. And Lord, that is our confession today. We are in great need. Though it looks like we have lots of stuff, food, freedoms, Lord, where there is sin, there is bondage and suffering, and we are in need. In your great goodness, you have provided a rescuer. And we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as our only hope. as our only salvation, as the only path, the only path unto you. Thanks be to God for Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, and in believing Jesus, in proclaiming him as Lord, you have united a people. You have brought a diversity of folks together. Help us to be hands and feet. Help us to be friends, brothers and sisters, people that support one another and proclaim the truth. Lord, thank you that as we gather today, we know that we will hear the gospel and that that is what will transform. Lord, do that work in us now, we pray. Amen. We are in Genesis right in the middle, well, 26 actually, so we're now tipping on the downhill slope. Uh, Genesis 26, verses 1 to 33 is what we're going to read right now. Follow along with me, if you will. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, 
And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to you your offspring, to your offspring, all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commands, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of, your, one of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them names, the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sita, Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboah saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord said to him the same night, appeared to him the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him, 
from Gerar with Uzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us. Between you and us, let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came to him and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Seba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Good morning. So good to see all of you. Some of you we haven't seen because we were sick, and some of you we haven't seen because you were sick, and it's so good to all be here uh, together, and we want to keep in our prayers those who continue to suffer in different ways and those who can't be here because of the danger to their health. And so I want to encourage you to reach out to people that you haven't seen that are your friends your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, during this time where some are uh, being isolated. Uh, this chapter, it, it's pretty amazing uh, because the, while Isaac comes up in other points, this is the one chapter dedicated to tracing the life of Isaac. And the interesting thing about it is that it reads like the life of Abraham in a nutshell. The story of Abraham began with receiving God's call and promise in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and here the call of Isaac is clearly linked with both the same style and substance. Following Abraham's call in early obedience is the first of two episodes where he fails to trust God and does exactly what Isaac does here with Rebekah, deceiving the king by claiming that his wife is his sister. And then following this, Abraham's men quarrel with uh, Lot's men about land, chapter 13. And uh, Abraham takes whatever land Lot does not want. And this is mirrored here where there's a quarrel with the locals and Isaac moves instead of fighting them. And then this is followed in both patriarchs' lives by God appearing to them and reassuring them of his promises and then their response in worshiping God with a sacrifice. And then finally, both narratives end with a treaty made with Abimelech at Beersheba. So these are very, very closely paralleled, but now we have the, the life of Isaac showing basically the same life as the life of Abraham, including all of these details. And all of this is to confirm that Isaac is receiving the promise that was given to Abraham. God is not only the God of Abraham, but he is also the God of of Abraham's offspring. He is the God of Isaac now as well. It's a long passage, so we'll read uh, parts here intermingled with the exposition. So starting in verse 1, now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. 
And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Egypt was the breadbasket of the known world from that, at that time. And so, like his father before him, Isaac, uh, during a famine, heads towards Egypt, where food could be expected to be found. Now, this was not the first time that God had intervened to keep Isaac from leaving the land of promise. But now he appears to Isaac, and with an allusion to the initial call of Abraham, even though Isaac lives in this land, he says, he commands him to dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So this is the, you know, Abraham hadn't yet been to this Canaan land, so this is how God refers to the land to Abraham when he'd never been there. I will take you to the land of which I shall tell you. Now Isaac's in the land, he knows the name of the land, he's been there, he's been there his whole life, and he's like, dwell in this land of which I shall tell you. It's a clear uh, allusion back to this promise to Abraham. The blessing God promised to Isaac would be contingent on his staying in the land. We saw this when Abraham prevented him from going to find a wife. Uh, And so now the Lord prevented Isaac from abandoning the land and moving to Egypt during the famine. And he does this by confirming to him the covenant promises he had made to his father Abraham. We saw this at at numerous occasions in the life of Abraham, but it is repeated here. And, And so this is something we really want to see here. God gives unconditional promises to Abraham. Promises that included not only Isaac, but to Isaac's children and to their children into perpetuity. So God had already told Abraham before Isaac was born that he was going to bless Abraham and that he was going to bless Isaac and he was going to bless Isaac's children and that all these promises would go through this family line. So these were unconditional promises. But the covenant would also require obedience. Because God has spoken, it will come to pass. He will not be proven a liar. God can promise such things because he, Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, is God alone who declares the end from the beginning, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so God does not promise to try his best with Abraham's offspring or to do it as so long as they cooperate. He promises even swearing an oath by his own name, that he would accomplish all that he had spoken over Isaac and Isaac's offspring, even to Abraham before Isaac was born. But, along with these unconditional promises are the various times that God makes it clear that receiving the covenant blessing would require obedience. 
Let's look back at Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we have the exact same promise, the exact same covenant that God has made with these people. Sometimes he gives this promise unconditionally, and sometimes he says, you must obey. And here in Genesis 22, after the fact, after Abraham has obeyed, God says, because you have obeyed, I will do this for you because you have obeyed. And so here in verse 5 of chapter 26, Isaac receives this blessing. It says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, the original audience would have immediately recognized that these are all standard terms from the law, primarily the book of Deuteronomy, which described the keeping of the full law of Moses. Now, Abraham didn't have the full law, but using these terms, the Lord was saying that Abraham had the kind of faith which causes obedience. He would have obeyed whatever God had commanded. So God will make unconditional promises and then also, at the same time, state that obedience had been required. Now, Many people today have decided to believe one or the other of these things. Some people believe that God is going to uh, do whatever God's going to do because God says he's going to do it, and therefore obedience doesn't matter. And others are going to say, man, if you don't obey, God can't have his way. We're going to accomplish all of his purposes by our obedience. And so some people believe one or the others of these things, but I want to teach you to believe both this morning. Everything that the Bible teaches us. And so God can promise Abraham that he will bless him. And Isaac. And Isaac's offspring. And then he will give them the promises with the caveat, if you obey. And then... Sorry, lost my spot there. So it, God will then give them this caveat, if you obey. So what we see here is when God says unconditionally, I will bring about these purposes, I will bring about what I have promised to you, and then also says, if you obey at other times, what we see is that God has promised to bring about the obedience of his people, just as he does here with Isaac. So these promises would be fulfilled because of the covenant God made with Abraham but they would be fulfilled through obedience as God brought his people to genuine faith. This would be accomplished by the only advancement in the promise as it is passed on to Isaac, something that was not promised to Abraham but is now promised to Isaac. Verse 3, God says, I will be with you. The life of Isaac begins with a call and a promise. And it ends with him living in peace and blessing in the land. But in between, we see God bring Isaac, as he did Abraham, to the obedience that would be necessary to experience the blessing. 
Isaac's initial obedience is quickly followed by failure to trust and obey. But through it all, God blesses him, keeps him, restores him. God is faithful to Isaac as he had been to his father Abraham and continues to remind him of the covenant that he had sworn to his family. What we see taking place in the life of Isaac throughout this chapter is described in Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see through these chapters... Not only was Isaac chosen by God before his birth, but he was, as all of God's children, predestined to be conformed to obedience. The obedience to God that was seen in his father Abraham, and the obedience that would later be perfected in Jesus Christ, God's own son. So there's not only a predestination to salvation, but the Bible clearly talks about there being a predestination to righteous living for those who are so called. And Romans tells us that there's no such thing as someone who is predestined and called who is not also justified and glorified. The way this word justified is used here is not just limited to the the saved status or the righteousness of Christ on our behalf in which we are declared righteous. Certainly it includes that, but this word justified is translated made righteous. What we usually refer to as sanctified, which means to be set apart as holy. The children of God are justified, declared righteous by the finished work of Christ Jesus, His blood shed on the cross, and His glorious resurrection. But those who God calls in this way and justifies in this way are also justified, made righteous by the outworking of this salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10.14 perhaps says it best. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love this passage. It sounds like an oxymoron. He's saying those who are already declared righteous, those who are perfected in Christ, are being sanctified. And so there is a once and for all righteousness in Christ where we are declared righteous because of his righteous obedience. And then there is also a justification which is being made righteous, being sanctified. And this is a process that will go through our entire lives and be finally finished upon death. So there is a righteousness in Christ which is being declared righteous according to His obedience, in which we are made perfect. But it is also a righteousness in Christ which is the necessary sanctification that follows the outworking of the righteousness that we have in Jesus. 
Not only were God's children predestined for salvation, but they are also predestined for obedience. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see this? I, I want you to see that because God can both unconditionally promise something over and over and over again to Abraham, years before Isaac's born, God has promised unconditionally to Abraham that Isaac will be blessed. And then God says to Isaac, stay in this land of which I shall tell you, this mystery land that you live in, and I will bless you. Is that now God making this blessing contingent on his obedience? Yes. He says, if you stay in this land, I will bless you. And he will then tell him that he will be blessed because of the obedience of Abraham. Now, we don't pick and choose which verses we want to believe here. If we can't understand it, we just hold it in tension. It was like, oh, God gives unconditional promises, and they're also a conditional promise I don't understand. But I, I want to help you to understand. God, when he promises that he will unconditionally do it, and then says it will be done through obedience, guess what God has just promised? That we are going to be obedient. And this is, this is the gospel we believe, church. This is what is so exciting about this gospel. That it's not my work, but God has promised that he has already prepared beforehand righteous works for us to walk in. And he will accomplish all his purpose, not just because he is sovereign, but through his sovereignty, he will bring us to obedience, accomplishing his purposes. It's all him. He's not reliant on us. But we have the joy and the privilege of walking in obedience. Isaac and his family would enjoy the covenant blessings because God promised it to them. But the point of the Lord's words to Isaac here in this passage is that this was also because Abraham was obedient. So the point is, Isaac and his family should obey what God instructed in order that they might enjoy further blessings from the Lord and that would in turn be passed on to the next generation. At the end of this section, it notes Isaac's obedience, verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And by this, Isaac is confirmed not only as Abraham's heir biologically, but an heir according to faith. Those who follow in the faith of Abraham will also follow in his obedience. And this is why Jesus harshly, harshly criticized the, the false teachers among the Jews who claimed Abraham as their father. Now, were they biologically descendants of Abraham? Absolutely. And yet, when they answered him, Abraham is our father, John 8, 39, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, they are tracing their genealogy back to Abraham. This is a great honor to them. This is super important to them. This means that they are the people of God. And Jesus is telling these ethnic Jews, these descendants biologically of Abraham, you are not children of Abraham. And, and I said it was very harshly. That's because in verse 40, 44, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. See, these people who thought Abraham was their father yet did not walk in the obedience of Abraham, Jesus clearly 
and unequivocally states, you are not Israel. You are not Jews. You are not children of Abraham. You are of your father because you do his works. You see, it was Jesus who often taught that you can know in which kingdom someone dwells, either that of light and truth or of darkness and deception, by the works that they do, Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Now, the last few weeks, we've been talking about the fact that salvation is fully the work of God. God saves. New life comes through new birth, something that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. And it is so important that we get that right because the way the Bible speaks about obedience being absolutely necessary will lead us into a works-based religion and a works righteousness that is completely unbiblical unless we also at the same time understand that salvation is of God alone. But because we understand that we can do nothing of salvation for ourselves, we can't perform a single act of new birth for ourselves, we can't regenerate our own spirits, we cannot do 1% or even less of what it means to save only God saves, this is why we can go hard in the paint about obedience the way that the Bible does. I remember as we started to preach through the book of Revelation, Seeing all these verses that were saying, if you obey, you will receive the reward. If you do not obey, you will receive judgment. And thinking, oh my goodness, I, I'm really glad we preached through Ephesians, the last, the last book we did. Otherwise, we'd be utterly confused. The Bible goes hard on obedience being necessary. And it has to be paired with this utterly free gift of salvation that God alone provides. Otherwise, you become legalists working out, working for your salvation rather than the biblical model of receiving free salvation and then working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so we have both. God promises, and it will come to pass because God is sovereign. And then God will also promise, I'm going to do this through your obedience. And this, too, we must hold to and seek and strive for. There is nothing wrong with a church that believes in the grace of God and salvation to teach you must strive for obedience in your life. Nothing wrong with it. It's when the church doesn't understand that salvation is of God alone, and then they start to strive for obedience, that it becomes works righteousness. It becomes, what can you do for yourself? Are you saved enough? Have you done enough to call yourself a Christian? The three narratives that follow in this passage are then clear parallels to Abraham's relationship with this guy, Abimelech. Genesis 26, 7 to 11. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. 
Like Abraham, Isaac is far from perfect. Just because he's chosen by God doesn't mean he doesn't still make man mistakes. He fails to trust, which causes him to deceive, which endangers the blessing. Have you ever been tempted to walk in deception in order to preserve your personal well-being or your way of life? Sometimes it just seems like the natural way. It's just, oh, we, man, we got to protect this. we got to make sure that, that we can keep doing what we want to do, so we're going to practice deception. And in fear for his life, Isaac followed the pattern of deception that was exhibited by his father uh, by putting his wife at risk for his own benefit and endangering the covenant blessings that God had promised. Now, you would think that right after God appeared to him with instructions for obedience and promising blessing and his presence with him and that he would have offspring and that his offspring would have offspring and that they'd become a, a wonderful nation and a blessing to the whole world, all of these things, you'd think that this would cause courage in this situation. And ironically, it did not. Right after God re-promises what he's going to do, um, when faced with a possible life-threatening situation, Isaac fell back on his own ability to deceive. Well, we often think of Jacob as being the deceiver. Uh, Abraham and Isaac were uh, not perfect either in that regard. Abimelech caught him laughing with his wife, which is a play on Isaac's name. It would kind of be like saying in English, Isaac was Isaacing with Rebekah. Uh, this is, of course, an idiom describing a certain activity by which Abimelech knew that they were married. But it is also a way of saying that Isaac was making a mockery of Abimelech by tricking him in this way. And by his lack of trust in God, Isaac was also making a mockery of his faith. So he's mocking with his wife, which stood in for something else, but also is legitimately what's taking place is there's this trickery going on, this deception. Now, most scholars believe that this was a later king, Abimelech, uh, probably a descendant of the Philistine king of the same name who Abraham interacted with just before Isaac's birth, and that the name Abimelech was either a title, like Pharaoh, or a dynastic name. Uh, think of our British monarchy of like a George or an Edwards. This would be a name that would keep repeating down the family line. But it's also quite possible that this story is anachronous, that is, it's told out of order. Because if Isaac and Rebekah had grown children, remember we've just had Isaac and Rebekah's grown children in the last story, if they had already had grown children, maybe even grandchildren, their, their marriage probably would have been apparent. So uh, it's possible that this happened early in their marriage and that there's only one Abimelech. But in either case, this king has learned his lesson from the earlier deception of Isaac's father. When up upon taking Sarah, Abram's wife, into the household of the Philistine king, the people were cursed by God. God protected Abraham, despite Abraham's uh, being the heel of the story. Behind, behind, despite Abraham being the bad guy, God protects him and blesses him. And, and quite concerned with the possibility of a repeat judgment, Abimelech is motivated by God to be quite careful around Isaac's marriage. 
The point here is the same as it had been with Abraham. Even when God's people act faithlessly, God who promises is faithful to bring about the blessing he promised. See, this is so important. When God promises, it will come to pass. And it will, in part, bring about obedience among his people. But when we fail, and we do, God is faithful. He will hold us fast, as we sang this morning. So God brings about blessing. Follow this thought into verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. It's a bountiful crop. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because there they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. The first point here, and it's the same as one of our points from the passage last week, and it is that God's choice of who to bless causes conflict. The Lord's abundant blessing on Isaac brought opposition from the men of Gerar, hindering him from living peacefully among the people of Gerar. As is his way throughout Genesis, God continually blesses all the wrong people for the way that the society was ordered. He blesses the younger son, the outcast, the weak, the foolish, the nothings. Here, he blesses the landless sojourner in the presence of Israel's enemies. Now, I'm not sure what it is about trickle-down economy God just doesn't get, But instead of choosing the rich and powerful, he blesses the landless immigrant abundantly in the midst of a famine, and it causes the Philistine leaders to envy and hate him, and it results in him being asked to leave the area entirely. That Isaac is spiritually blessed like his father is in evidence by the abundant physical blessings he receives here from God's hand. Now, this is not always the case. And it is not something God has promised that New Testament believers will necessarily enjoy in this temporary world. But in blessing Isaac during a famine, this makes God's choice very clear. That God has blessed Isaac in comparison to those around him. And we see the same thing with uh, the Israelites when they're living in Egypt in the land of Goshen. They're blessed in such a way that the people around see that they are blessed. 
this does not make everyone like them. This does not make everyone say, hey, I want to be an Israelite too. This causes envy and hate and animosity. The world envies the blessing. And in an attempt to arrest Isaac's prosperity, they filled the wells Abraham had dug with dirt. When they are able, they push Isaac off the wells. When they are unable, perhaps because he was, verse 16, mightier than them, they resort to vandalism rather than thievery, pushing in the wells. The Abimelech in chapter 21 had recognized eventually that Abraham was blessed and protected by God. But apparently, now that Abraham had died, the Philistines no longer honored that treaty with his family. Maybe they thought Isaac would be more vulnerable. Maybe they thought now that that blessed and protected man is dead, there will be a way in. The primary concern physically here is, is water. During this time of famine for farmers and shepherds, And God then continues to bless Isaac with water. Though everyone around opposed him, Isaac continued to move away and successfully dig new wells as God gave him the provision. So he names these first wells, Esek, challenge, and Sitna, opposition, which is from the same root as the Hebrew word for Satan, the the opposition. In, In these conflicts... Isaac did not fight back. He just kept relinquishing one well after another until God's blessing outdid human opposition. And finally, the frustrated Philistines leave him alone. You know, isn't this an incredible picture? They keep on opposing him, not because they have no other wells, but they come to where he's living and stop the wells, push him off the wells that he digs. Finally, God just keeps blessing him, and they leave him alone. None of the patriarchs went to war for the promised land, even when at several points it's made clear that they were the most powerful force in the area. Instead, they trust God to give their descendants the land at the right time. So finally, Isaac dug Rehoboth open spaces before moving back to Beersheba where God appeared to him to confirm once again the Abrahamic covenant follow along, verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahazah, that guy, and his advisor and Fickle, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done, nothing, done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. 
So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Again, from last week, we saw this same point. But through God's sovereign choice, sorry, though God's sovereign choice causes conflict with the world for those he has chosen, he also brings all conflict to be resolved in their favor. When the Philistines had done everything in their power to hinder the blessing on Isaac, yet fail, finally they seek to experience the blessing through peace with him. And in this way, like his father before him, Isaac not only receives blessing, but he bears and causes blessing to the nation around him. When the world pushes God's chosen one out because of jealousy, forcing him to be a nomad, it did not result in the expected economic ruin. When they ran him off of the wells of his father and then ran him off of these new artesian springs God had led him to in the wilderness, miracle fresh water flowing from springs, it did not result in Isaac's destruction, but it resulted in God being glorified. And when his enemies realized that no amount of opposition can hinder God's blessing, finally they sought peace with God's people in order to share in it. Beersheba is the place where Abimelech had sought to make a treaty with Abraham, and there they made an oath uh, from which the well received its name, which means oath or seven, or probably both. He gave him seven sheep at that oath, so it was probably a play on words on both. But Proverbs 16, 7 says that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But don't think that the life of Isaac was without tribulation. You know, when we think back to this, God kept on providing this base necessity, water, when he needed it to survive. He faced hardship and lack, in the famine. And when he was told by God not to do the, the normal, the natural thing, to go to the place where you could receive the provision, it would be like you having a great need of money to, to buy a house and, and receiving a word from God to not go to the bank. It would just be like, well, what else would you do? Like, he, he's going to the place where the food is and God tells him not to go. And instead, God provided for him in Gerar, but he was exiled because of this blessing. He was chased from his father's wells, chased from the springs of fresh water he found. But because the Lord was with Isaac and blessed him, the blessing would thrive no matter how much opposition came. The more the Philistines attempted to seize the water, the more water Isaac's servants found. And God comforted Isaac and reminded him once again of the promise, verse 24. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Once again, the blessing is linked 
unconditionally to the promise God made to Abraham. This is what Isaac could rely on. And this is what you and I can rely on today. In spite of the envy and hostility from the world over the Lord's blessing, the people of God can maintain confident trust in the Lord's promise of His presence and His provision. You know, church, I have no confidence that I will make all the right decisions and actions today or tomorrow. No certainty that I will perfectly obey. But the blessing of God is not only certain because He has promised, but my eventual obedience is assured as well, according to that same promise. And it will require obedience to the one we know as Lord. Hebrews 13, 6, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We see in Isaac's life exactly what Romans 8 talks about in God calling someone and and eventually bringing them to this place of peace and prosperity. And, And the whole part in between of God bringing them to a place of obedient faith of trusting what God has said. And when when there's a a lack of trust, we see that this leads to sin. You know, for a Christian, uh, we don't just sin because we want to, although that's certainly true. We sin when we fail to trust God. And so despite all our efforts and our desires to live righteous lives, Ultimately, what lacks in us when we walk in sin is that we have not trusted the goodness of God. This is exactly what we see here with Isaac. And so God's method, we've seen all the way through Abraham's life and now in the life of his son, is not just to chastise him and discipline him, as he does, he's rebuked by this king, but also to remind him of the blessing, to remind him of the unconditional promise. And so as you and I go today and we seek to live righteously as we are commanded because it is necessary to receive the blessing, we have to remind ourselves of the unconditional promise of God to bring about this blessing in us. The one who calls is also the one who will justify. The one who justifies will also glorify us. He will not stop halfway He does not begin a project and leave it half finished. He does not begin to save and then say at some point along the way, oh, throw up his hands and say, I can't can't accomplish what I was setting out to do here. Our God is sovereign. And it is knowing that that unconditional love of God is working for us that will cause us to meet the requirements of obedience that God has set before us. As we trust We will obey and not walk in sin. You see, so many of the people that I've worked with in in areas of especially habitual sin is this cycle of I'm going to do better 
and then being happy about doing better, and then becoming proud and then falling right back into the same sin over and over and over and over again. But the gospel, the Bible says, is the power to salvation for those who believe. It is as we believe in this goodness of God, this unconditional promise, that we start to fulfill the things that He has set for us to do, those good works He has predestined for us to walk in. Because although the promise is unconditional, obedience is also necessary. But we will give God credit for both. God is faithful. He's causing His people to be faithful. But if we were to become somehow impossibly faithful on our own, we would have something to boast in. But God, who has called, is also sanctifying. And what He requires in our obedience, He will provide. And so we will live our lives in growing sanctification, walking in faith, and giving Jesus all the glory and boasting only in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is always pertinent to us. It is always what we need at this time. God, one of my greatest fears uh, when we began to preach through books of the Bible is that we would never have uh, those topics that were, were so necessary to talk about in our context and whatever's going on in our lives. And you have rebuked me in that by showing your faithfulness in that your word is always exactly what I need. Thank you for, for speaking to us by your Holy Spirit and applying these things. God, we come to you with thanksgiving this morning because of your goodness to us. But your kindness also brings us to repentance. And so, Lord, we confess this morning that we have not walked in the obedience that you have called us to because we have not trusted the goodness of your grace. We have not trusted that you will perfectly honor all of your promises to your people. And so, God, I pray that you would begin to transform us today. And as we go and live our lives of worship to you this week, transform us, Lord, I pray, by your gospel. I've tried many times in many ways to smarten up and do better, to pull up my bootstraps and be a good Christian. But when I rely on myself, I am an utter failure. But God, the way that you promised to Abraham and Isaac also reveals that you are providing the obedience as well. And for this, we give you praise. We glorify you. We are so thankful to you. We who could not muster up the appropriate righteousness, who could not obey as we ought, who can call you Lord and yet treat you as nothing. But you who call are faithful. And so we can rejoice in the goodness of our God and the promises you have given your people. Make us truly sons and daughters of Abraham, heirs with Christ, 
we pray in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.